Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com. You'll be hearing more about them later on in today's interview, which begins right now. Very excited to welcome everyone's favorite green chicken to Forward Guidance, Doomberg. Doomberg, welcome to Forward Guidance. Jack, it's great to be here. Uh, long time coming and, and happy to get the chance to sit down and talk with you. I know it's going to be a great discussion. You cover energy, agriculture, and I'm sure we're going to t- cover uh, Russia and natural gas. But Doomberg, can we start and can you just tell us why did you start uh, Doomberg? You bet. Um, we, we're a small team that comes from industry. Uh, we, we, our team has several decades of experience in the commodity sector, energy markets, and related uh, industries. And um, several years ago, we started our own advisory firm, um, and uh, we consult you know, um, C-suite executives and high net worth family office type clients on things like business improvement, energy, pattern recognition. We're kind of a think tank. Uh, it's a fun, fun business to work in, and, and it's been great to grow it. Um, like, like all entrepreneurs, we ran into um, some headwinds with the COVID-19 and, and reinvented ourselves a little bit as a consequence of where we thought the markets were going. And um, we, we created a vertical of our business where we started helping some content creators um, run their businesses better. Um, and by the way, like for me personally, when, when I was um, an executive, one of the big differentiators for me was uh, my ability to explain complex scientific uh, concepts to uh, non-scientific investors. Yeah, w- one of the big advantages was uh, my my ability to uh, explain concept, uh, complex scientific concepts to uh, investors without scientific training. I'm a, I'm a trained scientist myself, and um, you know, once we got this experience in the content creation market and realized that there was this inefficiency, you know, our specialty is explaining non-finance concepts to finance people in language they can understand. And so we launched Doomberg. I was telling you before we. We started recording that we, this is our one year anniversary. It's been an amazing ride. Um, very excited with the, with the popularity, with the growth on Twitter, with the growth on Substack. And um, after we record this podcast, we will effectively be 100% behind the paywall, which has been its own crazy, but exhilarating and fun journey. So it's, it's really a great story. It's been a wonderful year and, and couldn't be happier with the results. What was your message that you wanted to get out there? Uh, when f- founding Doomberg, specifically regards energy markets? Because I think a year ago, energy markets had recovered from the crisis of COVID and oil going negative, but they hadn't reached the fever pitch that they're at now. So what were you sort of thinking? You know, what, what what themes were you seeing there? And you know, are you surprised at how high the prices have gotten? So as it pertains to energy, environment, and critical issues surrounding those topics, um, a huge inefficiency in our society today is that many of our leaders and most of their advisors have little or no scientific training whatsoever. And as well-intended as they might be, they often say things that are uh, unscientific, run against the laws of physics, uh, make very little sense practically. Um, when you combine that with the fact that many people from heavy industry would never go into politics for a variety of reasons, um, not the least of which it's you know incredibly difficult personally, and it's not very lucrative financially unless you're willing to have, let's say, um, bendable ethics. Um, you end up with policymakers making incorrect decisions for reasons they don't even understand. And so the core value proposition of Doomberg, as we set out, and it's certainly evolved to be that way, especially in the energy space, is to try to take advantage of those skills that I described earlier and to calmly and systematically with some entertainment and some humor, um, explain 
things in a way that even a non-scientist can understand why certain policy decisions are based on fallacies or platitudes and other policy decisions would be based on physics. And one of the phrases that we've coined, of course, is that, you know, in the battle between uh, platitudes and physics, physics is undefeated and, and we, you just cannot circumvent the laws of physics. Energy is life. Um, and the decisions we make around energy affect people's lives in, in real tangible ways. And we just put out a piece this morning, which is going great, um, called Diesel for Dinner, um, where we describe the insanity of, of taking up so much of American uh, soy plant, uh, planting acres to create renewable diesel when we have an ongoing food crisis. Um, and we talked about how, you know, this, of course, bleeds into the other edible cooking oils and the response by Indonesia to ban exports of palm oil, which is going to cause people to starve, um, is, a, is at least indirectly a result of, of policies like these. And so our ability to connect those dots, to explain complexity, um, to entertain our readers um, is the core value proposition of Doomberg and, and the brand attributes that we aspire to are threefold. Uh, one, we shall be um, provocative without being polarizing. Uh, we shall be funny without being silly, uh, and we shall teach without being self-indulgent. And to the extent that we've been able to refine each of our pieces with a, you know, an authentic uh, layer of continuous improvement spread over everything we do, um, that that's the sort of the, the brand mission and the ambition of Doomberg. I like that a lot, Doomberg. What is your core thesis for why the price of energy, natural gas, oil? as well as so many other commodities, including agricultural commodities, have surged so much? And what do you see, let's say, over the next year for those commodities, energy specifically, and why? So the, there's a, a variety of reasons. It's a, it's a complex question. And so I want to give as fair an answer as possible. Uh, there are many drivers, one of which is what we believe is foolish policy on the part of Western governments in particular, thinking that we can wave a magic wand and... Um, somehow extract ourselves from the primary inputs of energy that drive the economy. Um, second is, and directly as a consequence of the fallacy of our, of our uneducated leaders, um, there has been a huge move to defund the um, development of exploration, development, and production of traditional fossil fuels. And so um, these are highly inelastic markets. And when you crimp supply uh, or you, you crimp the reinvestment dollars needed to even maintain current supply, uh, inevitably, um, their utility hasn't changed, their demand hasn't changed. If you crimp supply uh, and demand exceeds supply, prices go up. Um, it's just when there's more buyers and sellers, price goes up. Um, the, the issue is these are really big battleships to turn. You know, these projects are billion-dollar projects, take years to come online, and it's it's not clear to me that the political cover to go back to investing at just the minimum necessary to maintain current production levels would be supported, even in this environment. Um, and capital goes where capital is treated well. And you know, when, when the current president of the United States was campaigning for office, he said jailing executives of fossil fuel companies was not out of question. Who wants to put money into an industry when the, the future president of the United States says, we're going to arrest you for running your company? Um, it's, it can't come as a surprise to anybody. Um, when you mix in nuisance lawsuits on the part of environmental radicals, um, really just insane policies, um, stunting domestic development of energy so that we can project our geopolitical power outward, um, we're seeing the consequences of those mistakes now, both in price, as you said, but also in 
the fact that Putin felt emboldened to make a move on Ukraine. Now, if, if Europe hadn't handed Putin all of their energy cards, we wouldn't be here. Um, but it is what it is uh, as, as, as it pertains to where they're going. It's hard to say. You know, the last time an oil prices spiked this high was just before the global financial crisis. Um, ultimately, if you think about the economy as an energy machine, um, the amount of economic growth you can spread across society is a function of how much energy you produce, um, net energy you produce. And if you're producing less energy, the economy can't grow. And so this is like every cycle. Um, the, 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 the cure for high prices is high prices and ultimately demand will be destroyed. We won't like the consequences of that. Um, it would involve substantially less economic activity. Um, but that's how it's going to end. I don't know when it's going to end, um, but you know, oil prices, energy prices this high um, aren't sustainable and are a huge drag on economic growth. And they really devastate the people right at the cost of, um, of the starvation line as um, prices set at the margin and the wealthy countries will set that price. When you say politics is preventing uh, sufficient fossil fuel investment, how much of it is actual politicians, uh, the president of the United States, uh, senators, the chancellor of Germany, versus how much of it is investors and in particular asset managers, like you know, the, the easy person to say would be uh, BlackRock, which have funds, e ESG funds, environmental, uh, societal, and governance that invest in everything except for fossil fuels and really cut off capital flowing to fossil fuel companies. Well, the, there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram between the two circles that you just proposed. Um, the CEO of BlackRock serves um, at the behest of the of the U.S. government. I mean, they, they, he could be regulated out of business tomorrow, and so they're just listening to the pun intended the way that the direction the wind is blowing uh, and putting up their wind turbines accordingly. And look, um, nobody wants a world full of pollution um, and uh, where global warming is run amok, and and we. We terraform the earth into Mars. Um, our policy is you have to get that energy from somewhere or a lot of people are going to starve or a lot of people are going to die. And um, the question at hand is how can we create the most amount of energy, ergo life, for the most amount of people, that has to be in the denominator, um, with the least amount of CO2 emissions? Um, zero is, is just impossible. Um, and anybody who tells you otherwise doesn't understand physics. Um, currently, 85% of the total calories, you know, the total energy produced in the world comes from fossil fuels. And it takes a lot of energy to create alternatives like solar and wind. And those have a payback period, just like any other financial spreadsheet modeling you might do. Instead of modeling this in dollars, if you modeled it in, you know, energy units, you have to invest you know, four or five times the energy that um, a solar panel can produce before it breaks even up front. And where's that energy going to come from? Well, it's got to come from other sources. It's competing in the market for that allocation. Um, and that's why you see when the energy crisis broke in Europe, it bled into China because these markets are interconnected. And 85% of the polysilicon in the world is produced in China. And the price of polysilicon is up, you know, three, four, five X from where it was before the energy crisis. These things are all interconnected. You can't, um, there's no perpetual motion machine. Um, the closest thing to a perpetual motion we, we, machine we have is nuclear um, because the energy return on energy invested there is incredible. And once created, the it's a zero emission power. 
Um, and so any policy, if you ever hear an environmentalist who claims to be for the planet and, and against uh, climate change, uh, but is also simultaneously against nuclear power, they are unserious people. Um, so, Or just woefully misinformed. Yeah, Doomberg, can you take, take us to what Ger Germany made a decision with nuclear power uh, a while back? Tell us what that decision was, why it was such a big mistake, and why it may now be responsible for so much of the European continent switching to coal, which is by far the most pollutant of all fossil uh, fuels. Yeah, well, after the Fukushima accident in 2011, I believe it was, um, Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel decided that she was going to lead her country to be 100% free from nuclear power. And they have systematically set about the task of closing all of their zero carbon emission nuclear power plants that existed. Um, and um, they've, they've, as a consequence of that, be become extraordinarily addicted to Russian natural gas because at the same time they are impeding domestic development of their own fracking fields and their ability to drill for natural gas themselves, um, much like the rest of the European continent, by the way, not just Germany. Um, and so uh, we wrote a piece, you know, many, many, many months before the Ukraine war called uh, Putin's Fools Rush In, where we basically laid bare the fallacy of this approach. We assumed that there wouldn't be a war and that Putin would just have all the leverage such that, you know, um, the West would have to capitulate. The West didn't capitulate and he went to war and now we're in the situation we're in. But he would not have been emboldened to go into Ukraine if he didn't hold all the energy cards. Um, we're about to find out just as we're talking today, you know, news is breaking that most of Europe is capitulating and paying for gas and rubles, which is going to have serious ramifications for decades. Um, many people on Twitter were saying that uh, this was never going to happen. And uh, well, here we are. Um, I, I we misinterpreted Putin and assumed he was bluffing um, before the war began. We no longer assume he's bluffing because, um, you know, there's only so many times we have to touch a hot oven to not do it again. And so we, we, we believe what he says. And so when he said he was going to demand payment for natural gas in rubles, um, we believe him, but many in the market didn't. So it's a really amazing thing to watch. Um, and ultimately, this is where understanding physics comes into play. Like you, ha you have to understand that it is literally impossible to wean ourselves off of these energy inputs without either mass mass starvation and huge disruption um, or some crazy invention that we don't yet understand. Um, and so here we are. The physics is undefeated. Yeah. Uh, so we're recording on Wednesday, April 27th. Yesterday, Russia announced that it would cut off gas to Poland and Bulgaria. And that is striking because up until that announcement, many people following this, including myself, were under the belief that it would be Europe to cancel Russia from gas. And that's how Europe would would cancel, uh, would punish Russia. In other words, Russia has more to lose than, than Europe does. But is that the case? Well, no. I mean, well, okay. It's clearly mutually assured destruction, to borrow a phrase from the Cold War, which seems apropos, considering we seem to be back into a new Cold War or even a hot one. Um, Russia has enough energy to support Russia. Um, okay, here, here's a great way to look at it. What's been going on in the markets in the last two weeks? We're seeing a strengthening of the Russian ruble to levels hot, you know, stronger than before the war. And I would suspect that members of the Biden administration would have assumed that the sanctions would have caused a complete destruction of the ruble and hyperinflation in Russia. That was certainly the expectation. Biden said so at a press conference, the ruble is rubble. 
etc. And sorry, dude, it, it looked like it did for the first two or three weeks. The, the ruble depreciated about 60% from 75 yeah. to 130. But now, as you say, it's stronger than before the war started. Yeah, and then and that's when physics kicked in, right? And people realized like he has the gas. And so what currency has been weakening the most in the past few weeks and beginning to cause alarm at the Fed, the Japanese yen? Uh, what are the differences between those two countries? One of them is a massive energy producer and exporter, and the other shut down its nuclear power plants and is a massive importer of energy. Um, and you know, my good friend Luke Roman, who who um, writes a great newsletter. Um, Force for the Trees, put out a piece over the weekend, which is behind the paywall, but I can describe the, the gist of it. Uh, the, the, the Japanese are the largest buyer of treasuries, largest foreign buyer of U.S. treasuries. Um, the weakening of the yen is leaking directly into U.S. interest rates. There's a strong correlation with the two-year treasury note and the weakening of the Japanese yen. It's causing elevated rates here. Um, this is how the energy crisis um, ultimately could potentially transmit into you know, policy challenges for the Fed. Um, I predict, Luke sort of predicts it as well, um, is that we'll probably see the, the Fed buy um, Japanese government bonds here soon to sort the of stand the weakness. Japanese government bonds. Of course, why wouldn't they? Um, you know, they, they have their own reserves. Um, and so um, if, if we see that, that would be a sign, I think, that physics is, is again, being obeyed. I mean, ultimately, um, Yes, Putin, quote unquote, has a lot to lose by cutting off the gas. But what what is he supposed to do? Accept payment in euros that he doesn't have access to because he's being sanctioned? Uh, um, so we shall see. There's a lot of debate. A lot of people think there's no such thing as the petrodollar. I, uh, we couldn't disagree more. Um, energy is life. Currency is basically just a, an overlay on top of a distribution of energy um, that tries to make distributing that energy more efficient than barter. But when push comes to sub, uh, you can't print gas, you can't print heat, you can't print fertilizer, you can't print food. Um, it requires energy to do these things. And Putin has a lot of energy. Uh, we might destroy his capacity to produce that energy by stuffing his wells, which will take years to repair, as um, as many have, have speculated, uh, Peter Zihan in particular. Um, that's all fine. Um, they will have enough for domestic production. They won't have any problem heating their homes in the winter, um, and Europe will. And so we'll see. I, I, I have long we have long written and have been really pounding the table on the geopolitical weakness that dumb energy strategy creates and um this is you know it's just today senior leaders in the european union are saying uh, it's long overdue that we recognize that our low prices for energy and food were artificial and uh and and it's time that we reconcile and and train ourselves for much higher prices going forward forward it's Okay, but this is not an accident. Like this was a result of dumb policy. Um, of course, you expect politicians to spin it. So I don't know. I, I think you're going to see Europe capitulate. Germany's not going to allow the gas to be turned off. Um, and if they do, it's going to be a real tough winter. I, I, it, in that piece that uh, we wrote, you know, called uh, "Measure Twice: Framing Europe's uh, Natural Gas Crisis," um, there are no solutions that are workable in the in the time frame that we're discussing here. So I, I suspect you're going to see. If Europe capitulates, um, you're going to see the ruble strengthen. You're going to see um, the, the yen continue to weaken. Um, who knows what it's going to mean for gold and other commodities, but it's a really fascinating situation to play out in. And I'm a big fan of Luke Roman. I know there's a lot of Twitter debate um, about uh, some of his uh, proposals, which he happily engages in. But um, I, we're certainly big fans of his work and, and tend to agree with it. As am I. What 
can you can you walk us through the numbers of uh, how dependent on Russian gas is Europe? How much of Germany's natural gas comes from Russia? Uh, how much of Poland or, or any other countries? And what are the alternatives if that natural gas would be shut off? I know there is a European plan. Uh, we were just discussing it before we went on camera. And I know you have some, some doubts about that plan, to put it lightly. Yeah, so it's a big challenge. And so one of the one of the difficulties and one of the things that Doomberg specializes in is distilling complexity. Um, one of the difficulties in discussing natural gas is just the sheer number of units it's quoted in. And it can be very, very confusing. So just to give you an example, the price of natural gas in the US is quoted in dollars per million BTU. Um, production in the US is quoted in billion cubic feet per day. Um, natural gas is quoted in Europe as um, euros per kilowatt hour because it's predominantly used to make electricity. Um, and its, its production is measured in million metric tons per year. How can you make sense of all these numbers unless you uh, levelize them? And so in this piece, we did. And so we levelized all production to billion cubic feet per day. So once we did that, it's kind of easy to do, you know, back of the envelope, quick comparisons. So here are the numbers. The U.S. produces something like 90 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas, and it exports via liquefied natural gas terminals, roughly 12 billion cubic feet per day. Um, that's a good sense of the market. The U.S. is a huge producer of natural gas and will soon be the number one exporter of LNG. Uh, one of the challenges with gas is it's a gas, and so you can't just ship it on any boat. It, it requires very specialized vessels, and it, it requires export terminals that are billions to create and years to construct that basically take this natural gas and freeze it to very, very cold temperatures so that it becomes a liquid. And then they put it on these uh, LNG cargo ships. And then you need a specialized LNG import terminal on the other end to receive it. And so 12 billion cubic feet per day is exported through US LNG export terminals today. The entirety of Europe's dependence on Russian natural gas is 15 billion cubic feet. So the first conclusion in that piece was Europe's Russian bogey is 125% of the entire U.S. LNG export capacity. Um, said another way, it is comparable to 30% of the global LNG capacity, including countries like Qatar and Australia, who are, along with the U.S., make up the big three. Um, our estimates are that Germany is building approximately 3 billion cubic feet per day of import capacity. Um, but that's going to take a very long time to come online, sometime between 2025 and 2026. You can't just snap your fingers and build, um, build these terminals. Um, back to nuclear, um, if Germany were to reverse its decisions on nuclear, just the reactors it has closed down recently and are, and are scheduled to close down now, and if the EU made uh, an aggressive push to help France get the efficiency of their nuclear reactors back up to snuff, um, that's 17% of the bogey right there. Um, they, they won't do it. Um, they don't seem to be doing it. And, and until they do it, um, nobody can say that they're being serious. Um, as far as import capacity goes, they have some flexibility to bring more into Spain, but the pipelines that connect Spain to the other major users of natural gas don't exist. And so that's not really input capacity until those pipelines are created. Um, within the U.S., um, we are doing more to create more export capacity, but at the same time, the Biden administration is um, and their allies um, continue to impede the development of natural gas. We wrote a piece uh, about the Mountain Valley pipeline. Um, 
sort of the classic penny holding up a dollar situation. It's 97% complete. It would help lift more natural gas out of Appalachia and, and feed it into our network, which could then be fed to the global network via these new LNG terminals. Um, that that pipeline is not yet done. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend viewers to to read it. It's called Measure Twice, Sizing Europe's Natural Gas Crisis. And in that piece, you link to another writer on, on uh, Substack called Irina Slav, who goes in depth on the European plan to replace Russian gas. So you uh, thank you for outlining how the 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 measurements are are there there's so many numerous so we're let's stick to billion cubic feet for per day russia's imports uh to europe pre-war were 15 billion cubic feet per day and i'm just going to go through this piece so that's the hole that that europe would have and uh i'm just r- roughly about um 5 billion of that would come from a switch to liquid natural liquefied natural gas. So correct. How uh, explain how? Correct me if I'm wrong, but through the pipelines, gas natural gas stays gas. But when you transport via ship, you have to form it into a liquefied form, and then once it goes on land, you have to regasify it. So turn it from a liquid back into a gas. So there are constraints on how much Europe can regasify. How how uh, you know how many. How much capacity they have for those regasification terminals, but what? Let's just start with that: uh, 15 billion cubic feet per day hole, five billion from a switch to liquefied natural gas. Meaning they'll get it from places that aren't uh, Russia, and I believe 2.5, so half of that five billion cubic feet per day would come from the U.S. and the other would come from uh, Qatar and Australia and maybe. Azerbaijan as well is how realistic is that, and also what's the the time time frame? Yeah, as we said, look, anything could be done over a long enough time frame with enough money. So there's no doubt in my mind that Europe can wean itself off of Russia's natural gas in a controlled way, assuming the other side plays ball. I mean, we are assuming here that um, Putin will be happy to sell whatever gas we need until we no longer need it. Uh, who's to say that he doesn't want to inflict pain between now and then to cause a real crisis because we have given him those cards. He has that power to do that. That's, again, we're no fans of Putin, by the way. When we wrote those pieces, we were trying to highlight the fact that we had delegated our energy policy to somebody who doesn't like us. Uh, that's stupid. We shouldn't do that. Um, so back to your question, there are three large import LNG import terminals being constructed in Germany by very credible multinational multinational mega firms that you would expect to be involved in such projects. Those projects will get done. Um, they will be responsible for an additional 3 billion cubic feet um, just to Germany. Um, I'm sure that by 2025 or 2026, um, one third of that hole could probably be filled with LNG. And in the piece we talk about Qatar's ex- expansion plans as well. Um, they're going to add several billion cubic feet per day of export capacity, much of which will be paid for and earmarked by Europe. I suspect you're going to see a lot of European capital investment in these foreign projects, helping to offset the the financial risk of the companies involved. Um, That's fine. It can be done. It's just not going to be done in 2022 or 2023 or 2024. We got three more seasons at least to deal with this guy. And and so that's why we're watching the market very closely. You know, um, what's the response to this ruble gambit um, is pretty interesting. And as we're talking, I'm just going to pull up what the um, price of natural gas is in Europe today. And it's at $34 per million BTU compared to um, $7 million per BTU here in the US. So they're still paying 
despite coming substantially off the highs, more than four times what we're paying for natural gas because our gas is kind of stranded here. It's, it's capped by our ability to export. So what's going to happen if all of this capacity can't be built until much later? I mean, as you say, demand for natural gas is uh, inelastic. It's not like just because the price of natural gas is 40% higher, people don't need it. Oh, 400% higher, yeah. <laughs> let's be clear. Um, well, look, I don't know. That's a magic question. I, I do know that um, absent the natural gas, the European economy collapses, period. Now, whether accepting the collapse of the European economy is in the cards um, uh, as a way to um, engage in economic warfare with Putin, it's fine, but just realize that that's what's on offer. <laughs> you know, and just to benchmark more units here, um, at $34 per million BTU natural gas, that's roughly $200 a barrel oil equivalent on an energy content basis. And um, natural gas peaked out uh, shortly after the war uh, at almost $70 per million BTU, which is the equivalent of $600 a barrel oil. These are serious numbers, Jack. These are numbers that catalyze recessions and depressions. Um, the European manufacturing industry is decimated by numbers like this. They can't compete. Uh, American manufacturing is, is set to soar because we have access to this cheap input. By the way, US natural gas is $7 per million BTU is really expensive compared to recent history. Um, and we put out a piece to our pro subscribers making the call that uh, that arbitrage between the US and Europe has to close eventually. Um, and the arbitrage between natural gas and oil has to close as well because U.S. natural gas at $7 per million BTU is the equivalent of $42 oil. So even though natural gas is up threefold in the U.S., it is still a third of the cost of oil as an energy input. And so you have two jaws of arbitrage open here at the same time. You have Europeans paying much more than Americans, and you have oil commanding a much higher price than natural gas. That correlation between natural gas and oil used to be pretty tight. Um, and what happened is the shale revolution caused there to be more natural gas than we knew what to do with. And the correlation between natural gas and oil broke when that crisis, um, when, when, when that shale revolution occurred and we, and we had all this associated natural gas being produced and no place to put it. Uh, we believe now with this export capacity in place that that correlation is going to come back to the fold. And so there's two real big bullish undercurrents to U.S. natural gas in our view. It's European arbitrage and the arbitrage with oil, and they're both pointing in one direction, which is higher. Now, whether $10 gas in the U.S. or $15 gas in the U.S. is politically tolerable is the big question. Uh, will politicians impose export controls or price controls for domestic supply? We'll see. Um, crazier things have happened. Um, and so that's the big risk to the trade. But left to its own devices, that arbitrage has to close. Right. And you're talking about natural gas, not gasoline, just to be clear, right? Yeah. The, gasoline is distilled from oil and natural gas is the... The thing that comes into many of your homes through a pipe that gets burned in your furnace that heats your house. And it's also burned to create electricity. Uh, and it's also a key input into the production of fertilizers, which we can talk about, and key chemicals like ethylene and propylene and the sort of seven or eight critical chemicals that make up all of the materials that surround you, including everything that in the room you're sitting in. Um, these, these are really important input, natural gas. And gasoline is an entirely different thing. Right. And because it's so volatile and it needs to be converted from one state to another. That's why you can get such a big discrepancy where it's you know six times more expensive in Europe than it is in, in the US. 
I want to ask a question about part of this European plan includes, so of that $15 billion hole, again, $5 billion comes from liquefied natural gas. You say it's not going to come for many years. They, $1 billion of it comes from energy conservation. To what degree, Doomberg, is energy conservation just a euphemism for demand destruction? And do you think it could be larger than $1 billion? Oh, well, it will be whatever Putin decides it will be, <laughs> right? I mean, um, yeah, so energy is life. The human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. The literal definition of standard of living is how much energy you get to waste to impose order on your local environment. That's it. I mean, that's, it sounds cold, um, pardon the pun, but you cannot impose order on your local environment without generating waste heat. And um, we wrote a piece all the way back in the beginning, few people have read it, called Why Are Cows Sacred? Um, and we basically explain how climbing Maslow's hierarchy of needs is basically a function of how much energy you get to waste as a human. And we waste a lot of energy here in the US. Um, we, in the piece, we talked about what is the carbon footprint of the Super Bowl with all of the games and flying those players around and people driving to and from the stadiums and private jets to the Super Bowl. That's an enormous amount of energy that we use for entertainment, which is fine. I mean, that's standard of living. We are blessed in the US in particular um, to have a very high standard of living, predominantly because we produce an enormous amount of energy. Um, so um, if there's no energy coming in, by definition, conservation is going to happen because you just can't create energy out of nothing. Um, and so, you know, if, if they don't start paying for gas and rubles and Putin cuts them off as he's threatened to do, and he isn't bluffing, which we don't think he is, then we're going to find out what demand destruction looks like. And um, one of the phrases that we've coined is the price elasticity of demand for energy is the price elasticity of demand for life. And who can afford to pay it is going to clear the market. And um, for us in the West until now, energy has been thought of as just another commodity. And when we flick the switch, the lights come on. Um, when that's no longer the case, um, people with means will pay virtually any price, multiples of today's price, to clear the market, and those without means are screwed. There's no other way to say it. Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com, a leading cryptocurrency trading platform. From spot to futures to options trading and more, Bit.com has it all. So whether you're a seasoned investor or you're new to the game, you need to be on Bit.com. Bit.com has launched a zero-taker fee option campaign until May 10th. To enroll, email VIP at bit.com. That's bit spelled B-I-T. So email VIP at bit.com and tell them I sent you. Just going through the plan, 1.2 billion of that 15, they want to come from nuclear power. Do you think that's enough? Uh, I think they could do more. And I think the easiest decision to make is to keep existing power plants that we have on now. We've railed about this forever. There is no cheaper incremental energy available that is both carbon-free and baseload power than nuclear. And the last remaining nuclear power plant in California is scheduled for closure, Diablo Canyon. That might be the single dumbest policy decision on offer in the United States today. There's no other way to say it. Um, that energy is safe. It's clean. Nuclear waste is a canard. It, it produces an enormous amount of energy. Um, it costs nothing, barely anything to maintain. Um, we need to keep those plants open, step one. And Germany could certainly do that. And they just shut down three reactors um, over the New Year's holiday. They could turn those back on. Um, there's all kinds of excuses in the German media. Believe me, the country of Germany has sufficient engineering expertise to turn those three nuclear reactors back on. Um, 
And so I don't understand the German reticence on this issue. I think there's probably a scandal at the center of it. There's an awful lot of powerful people in Germany that got rich off of the of Putin taking over that market share, uh, including you know a former chancellor. Really, how um, so? We shall see. So? Uh, he sits on the board at Gazprom. Um, uh, uh, Gerhard Schroeder. Oh, oh, not, yeah. no, for the former, yeah, yeah, for former, yeah, yeah. So I thought you meant Olaf yeah, I, was, I was stunned, yeah, yeah. But no, 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 no. Very, yeah, very, yeah, very powerful figure. Yeah, and um, and you know, uh, so one wonders what the genesis of this insanity is. You know, whenever you see something so obtuse and so anti-physics, um, you, you the mind begins to wander. And I think once the full history of of this unfortunate scandal is written, um, we will be surprised at the at the depths of the corruption potentially at the center of it. Right. Well. Even I, who's you know not nearly as in the weeds as Team Doomberg is on this, even I can see how obtuse it is when you have two billion of that fifteen billion dollars of, of, of uh, cubic feet per day having to come from coal, which is by far the dirtiest yeah. pollutant um, you know, known to man. Essentially, is the irony lost on these people that they are, are turning to the most uh, carbon emittent intensive fuel and and how do they how do they justify it i mean I'm, are there people on the left wing who must object to it surely they must right yeah it's, a, it's all putin's fault yeah um, and so this is the the great excuse for everything um the putin price hike right um so i i don't know i, I don't know how these people who should know better sleep well at night um again they aren't the primary victims of their incompetence it's the people right on the cusp uh at the lowest rungs of the economic ladder within our western society and even worse, people in developing economies um, that will fall victim to this even worse, um, those are the ones that suffer the consequences of energy ignorance. Uh, there is no worse policy to get wrong than energy. And we've got it wrong. It's just no other way to say it. Um, there is a path. We understand the path to a cleaner, higher energy future. Um, it involves proactively replacing coal with natural gas recognizing that not all fossil fuels are created equal. It involves a recommitment to nuclear power. It involves reclaiming the polysilicon slash solar power industry from China and producing it domestically in the US in these giant natural gas fields. You can't make solar without cheap energy. This is why China has taken over. They've used dirty thermal coal and, and effectively slave labor to undercut uh, international production of solar panels. And now they have 85% of the market. Uh, I don't know what we expected. Um, we need to take that over, do it right, run it more environmentally friendly, understand that there is no magic wand, understand that all decisions come with trade-offs, have an intelligent discussion about what those trade-offs are, positive and negative, and make the best decisions possible for society such that the maximum number of people have the highest standard of living possible. Um, it, we'll have to get there eventually. There, there will be riots, we've said many times, on the path from uh, abundance to starvation is riot. Um, we're going to see uh, revolts. People won't accept it. We're seeing it already at the periphery, and soon it will come to the core. Um, it's just inevitable. And so eventually, we will have to make the physics, uh, you know, the, the, the decision that physics would guide us to, or we have to suffer consequences that are unimaginable to your listeners. And we suspect that we'll probably do a bit of the latter before we end up at the former. And explain the knock-on effects of the price rise in energy. Obviously, energy alone, it's so important. You, you drive a car, you, uh, you know, anything that essentially uses electricity uses some form of energy. But it's not just that. Explain, for example, how the surge in the price of natural gas can cause directly 
uh, uh, you know, the price of corn doubling, the price of uh, wheat tripling. It, it, walk us through how that happens. So energy is life. Um, the primary inputs into fertilizers, for example, are natural gas to create ammonia, um, potash and um, uh, potash and, and potassium are um, mined, and this requires diesel to power the tractors and electricity and water to you know run the concentrators and the smelters and so on. Um, and so literally, we spend an enormous amount of energy to grow food. Um, uh, luckily for the US, a lot of it comes naturally through um, sunshines and, and river, you know, river, river waters make for great um, irrigation systems that are low or free energy effectively, but you have to supplement that. You have to supplement it with fertilizer, you have to supplement it with herbicides, you have to supplement it with fungicides and with tractors and labor. All of that is an energy penalty. So again, if you reorient your calculations around return on energy as opposed to return on dollars, it becomes very clear that there's a finite amount of energy that needs to go in to make a certain amount of calories. And if the price of that input goes up or its availability goes down, the price of the product has to go up. Uh, it's just simple. Um, again, this is just the transmission function of physics. Um, if you don't use fertilizer, you get lower yield. If you get lower yield, you have less food. If you have less food, the ultimate inelastic commodity, people riot. Um, that's, that's very simple, A to B to C to D. And, and it, it's just inevitable. It's sad that it's inevitable. It's one of the reasons that we're preppers um, to make sure that we can um, bridge ourselves to a regime of sanity. Um, but we don't doubt for a second that we're going to have to suffer a lot more insanity before people wise up. Just, just to be clear, what do you mean when you say you're preppers? Uh, we uh, have a, a preparedness mindset. Um, uh, the, the members of Team Doomberg and many of our friends, um, you know, this prepper is kind of a derogatory term. I don't like it. I prefer preparedness and, and self-sufficiency. But um, we store extra food and, and, and supplies. Um, not crazy, not hoarders. Um, we'd like to be able to persist. Um, you know, if the grocery stores didn't have food for two or three weeks, um, it would be inconvenient for us, but it wouldn't be life or death. You know, many people have very low working capital in their homes. We view our homes as factories and um, we view elevated working capital to run those factories as prudent and uh, both a hedge against inflation and an insurance policy against being destocked. You know, the average grocery store has three or four days worth of food in the inventory. Um, and all of that food gets replenished using diesel trucks. And you could imagine like with trucker shortage and diesel price skyrocketing and supply chains breaking and imports being you know, stranded in China because of their COVID policy. All of these things put at risk the just-in-time um, efficiency over robustness supply chains in the food sector that we've become accustomed to over the years. And we have a strong desire to insulate our family from that. Um, not forever. I, we, we don't have years worth of food, but we could go weeks. We could go months, stretch it to months. Um, very few people could. Uh, and we've encouraged as many of our friends to consider it uh, as possible because it's, it's not crazy. To, to conceive of food shortages eventually making it here. We don't think they will, but if they did, we would at least like to have that extra level of preparedness uh, on the home front. Hope that answers your question. Yeah, it, it does. Thanks. So I think right now we're kind of at the, the weakest link part of the, the supply chain cycle where, okay, corn uses way more fertilizer than soybeans. So farmers are planting more soybeans and uh, nowhere near enough corn. So there's going to be a shortage of corn, but there's going to be a surplus of soybeans. So it's kind of a lack of one, but it's replaced by uh, an oversupply mm. of another. At what stage do you think it becomes 
sort of there's a lack of, of everything. And, and could you perhaps relate it to the cost of diesel, the cost of natural gas? If, if natural gas is here now, how much higher does it have to go before you think, oh, me prepping is not just a tail risk hedge, but it's something that I think is you know, quite possible within the near term future? So I don't believe the US will ever have a food crisis um, where we see empty grocery store shelves for very long across big swaths of the country. You might see it in spots um, as supply chains break down. The challenge, and we wrote a piece called Farmers on the Brink that, that captured this. Um, the challenge isn't here, the challenge is there. Uh, so um, natural gas prices and fertilizer prices are already so high that it's going to cause a famine. And that's because to farmers in the developing world that aren't as financially sophisticated, don't have the resources, weren't able to hedge, weren't able to pre-buy, the current prices are a crisis, and it's going to affect yields. It's going to affect availability. And most importantly, it's going to lead to what we call economic vapor lock, which is where a cascading series of protectionist policies are implemented in, a, in an effort to at least shore up the home front, but ultimately has the long-term effect of making it harder for everybody else, including those countries. And we saw that just last week. We put out a piece this morning, your question around connecting it to diesel called Diesel for Dinner, where we showed that, in fact, much of the increase in soy has nothing to do with fertilizer. It has to do with the fact that there are these mandates to produce something called renewable diesel from soy oil, which basically means we're taking all of this fertilizer, all of these chemicals, all of this energy to grow food, to burn it for energy. It's the most circular, insane policy you can imagine. We're doing it at scale in the US. Just to give you some numbers that we, we quoted in the piece, um, 87 million acres of soy were planted last year. And um, in the next three to four years, experts believe that number will have to grow to 120 million acres just to satisfy the incremental demand for quote unquote renewable diesel um, while the world starves. Um, it's, it's literally can't make it up, Jack, if you tried. And so um, there's all kinds of perverse policies like that that are affecting the market to, and we close the piece by saying, man, what a, what a grotesque spectacle this almost seemed to those who are fighting for edible food on a daily basis. You know, um, it's crazy. So farmers today in the developing world are going to not be able to afford fertilizer, not be able to get fertilizer. They're going to see lower yields. Um, there's going to be food shortages there. There will be food riots there. Um, we will pay any price. We will bail out farmers. We will provide stimulus checks to economically um, you know, uh, challenged. Um, we, we suspect that the U.S. government uh, will do everything it can to make sure there are no food shortages here. And the primary way they'll do that is we'll, we'll pay any price. That only exacerbates the exportation of inflation. And so the clearing price is set by the richest marginal buyer. And so you know we are that buyer, and, and that's why you're seeing soy at $17 a bushel up from $7 a bushel two years ago. Um, we'll pay that price. Um, not many people can. And so that's where the the next wave of this crisis will be. We're, to be clear, we, we're not calling for, didn't call for, haven't called for food shortages in the US. Um, our prepping philosophy is predominantly a tail risk, but also a hedge against inflation because we store what we eat and we eat what we store. We've just increased our working capital, that's it. So the, the return on that investment has been very positive for us because most of the inventory we have in our home was purchased at much lower prices. Um, but you know, if I were living in a developing country, I would have a lot more food in my house, uh, assuming you could acquire it and store it and afford it. Um, it's just a real tragedy that that not many can. Thanks for clearing that up. So, so that's natural gas and fertilizers. 
Uh, talk to us about oil. It's my understanding that Russia doesn't have as strong of a stranglehold on uh, the the European oil supply. But what's going on in the oil oil market? I know, you know prices have surged from, I mean, literally being negative for for spot prices in April of 2020 to now over a hundred dollars um, in the case of Brent and WTI. Although I'm not sure uh, where it is today. Uh, how high do you think the price of of oil could go? And just tell us what what, what you're seeing in that market. So there's some differences between oil and natural gas. The most important of which is oil as a liquid, and so oil at room temperature. So oil as a liquid at room temperature means that the technology needed to ship it around the world is far simpler, which means that market is far more global and less heterogeneous than natural gas. Um, you need deep ports, basically, to load big tankers, nothing more. Um, that matters, of course. There's certain ports that are not deep and they require sort of ships to run between, small ships to run between the big ones. These are inconveniences. But by and large, um, the market for oil is global. And you can expect, because it's not like at the margins, these commodity markets are the cleanest or the most ethically run, that much of Russia's oil will eventually find its way into the market and that will displace sort of clean oil from the sort of, um, you know, uh, clean, dirty as it pertains to Russia's dirty oil and oil produced here is clean and and not in the environmental sense, but in the political sense. Um, So um, the the real challenge with oil is, is twofold. One, the one that we outlined earlier, which is the lack of capital. But also um, a big challenge in the U.S. shale patch is um, the, the, these companies have been basically decapitalizing the industry by uh, completing uh, almost the entire inventory of drilled but uncompleted wells. So uh, post-COVID, um, the, the production of, of oil in the U.S. has not yet eclipsed the pre-COVID highs. And um, we're seeing with each month the Department of Energy report that um, drillers are completing previously drilled wells, which is kind of the cheapest, easiest way to get incremental supply. Now, there are lots of great things about the shale patch. One of the downsides is these wells tend to um, dissipate in their productivity far quicker than traditional fields. And um, we suspect, and many others have suspected as well, um, that um, once we've exhausted this cheap and easy access to incremental supply, that we could even begin to see U.S. oil production turn over. Um, and that would be a real challenge. And then there's also questions about OPEC's ability to um, increase its own supply. And there's some really smart people who have been saying for a very long time that the uh, quote-unquote spare capacity of OPEC's or the OPEC's plus nations is, is a mirage. Um, and then there's the whole question of whether these oil-producing nations want to be paid in U.S. dollars, which is a topic for you know, a different podcast. But um, it's not as near the crisis as natural gas. It's not near as heterogeneous as natural gas. The technical solutions to you know, stop the importation of oil from Russia uh, and to replace that oil uh, with external sources is a far easier one than natural gas. And so um, oil could go a lot higher. But again, that those those types of price spikes tend to self-correct in the sense that they destroy demand and destroy the economy. And so it's the, the only question is, at what price level do we trigger economic recession and or depression if we're not already on the path to one? Why is it, unless I misunderstood you, what, why is it that you say that oil will destroy demand faster than natural gas? Is there something special about natural gas where it doesn't, it's, it's even more inelastic than oil? No, I, I, and if I said that, I didn't mean it. Um, I just mean generally energy prices, oil, gas, coal um, are incredibly 
you know, these types of spikes, especially the volatility, Jack, that's a real issue. So if you haven't worked in an industry before, this might be a nuance that, that, that you haven't considered before. But if you give it enough time to work these price spikes through your contracts, um, you can handle steadily rising but low volatile price action. It's the price spikes that really put people out of business. So if you're, you know, just because the price is quoted, that doesn't mean that this is how these commodity companies interact with their clients. I mean, they, they, they might use those prices as reference points, but there's all kinds of B2B contracts that have, you know, various payment terms that have, um, you know, um, certain uh, tra trailing average of price spikes. And it's very heterogeneous the way business is actually transacted. And um, one thing that's really difficult for, um, for you know, um, fully integrated supply chains like say the chemical industry is um, at each node, you're priced on the previous node and, and uh, from a cost perspective and your revenue comes from the node ahead of you. And if, if the node behind you is really volatile, it can put you out of business quickly. So imagine you would have you know, pre-sold a bunch of natural gas at a low price um, as a producer to hedge and then gas spikes and then the, the gas you actually have to go out into the market and buy to deliver that puts you out of business. That's why you're seeing so many power companies in the UK, for example, go out of business because you know, the volatility is just killing them. So the, the spikes are a real problem in and of themselves. Um, uh, just like a spike high could, could, could kill you too because you, you, know, you buy at that price and then your product is tied to oil, let's say, as a reference point and the price of oil collapses. Well, you, the last buyer at that price lost a lot of money effectively. And so it, it, the volatility is really, really crushing to the economy and ultimately, um, I wouldn't say there's any particular difference between how price spikes in natural gas and oil affect the market. Um, they're both critical to the to the economy, uh, clearly. And if we if we had to say, which with WTI crude oil at about a hundred dollars a barrel, natural gas at uh, seven dollars and twenty cents, um, what which which do you, th you know, where do you see the prices uh, having the most potential to to explode higher? In other words, you know, which which are you more bullish on? Uh, I would say U.S. domestic natural gas for the reasons we outlined earlier, which is uh, it has two sources of arbitrage. Oil is more expensive than natural gas on an energy content basis, and oil is more expensive in Europe than it is here. And both of those serve to put a bid under U.S. natural gas. Um, and um, since natural gas is used for um, three really important things, heating, producing electricity, and creating chemicals, the uh, price elasticity of demand, um, which will set the marginal price, will be paid by the industry that has the highest value potential to afford it. And it's always better to have three bidders than one. And so um, I would say natural gas, uh, if you push me, uh, we're not stock pickers and we don't give investment advice. Um, natural gas seems to have at $7 per million BTU, like we discussed earlier, that's the equivalent of $40 oil. Um, if oil stays above 100 or goes to 150, it's hard to imagine that natural gas stays down at 40. On, a, on an energy equivalent basis. And so um, the price of, um, of natural gas in the US is a huge advantage for our manufacturers because they produce products that are priced globally. And so that will increase the demand for natural gas as long as that arbitrage is open. And that's how it close. And in the European plan to, to get off Russian natural gas, two and a quarter billion cubic feet per day would be replaced by renewables, namely wind and solar. Uh, what's your outlook there? How possible do you th think that is? Again, it's all a matter of how much energy do you want to deploy um, to create that power. And we wrote a piece um, just this weekend called 20,000 Volts Under the Sea, where we talked about this interesting project in, um, in Morocco to make the world's largest solar and wind farm. 
And most importantly and critically, and we, we praise the project for this, to try to produce baseload power and send it, you know, 3,500 kilometers under the sea to Britain uh, in the form of baseload power. Um, that's an enormous amount of energy. Where's the polysilicon going to come from? The price of polysilicon in the in China is is something like thirty dollars a kilogram, up from eight or nine. Um, why is that? Well, because silicon polysilicon is basically just energy. The number one input into um, into producing solar panels is energy, and it takes four or five years for those same solar panels to uh, return the initial energy up front. And so, if you're going to deploy a huge amount of energy to create a machine that produces energy, the amount of upfront payment has to come from somewhere. Where is that going to come from is our question. Um, it, it, there's no perpetual motion machine here. You have to pay the penalty upfront. And so I just, as we were talking, I pulled up the price of polysilicon in China. And if you look at the sort of five-year chart, we're at $34 per kilogram today. And in June of 2020, at the depths of the COVID pandemic, it was down to $6. So we're at five and a half or six times the price, not five and a half percent, but five and 550 or 600%. And that's huge. And that's just, that's just physics. Like that, the, the choice to take that cheap thermal coal and to make polysilicon has to be measured against the need to use that same coal to produce electricity to keep the lights on in China today. And the Chinese have made their decision. And so um, that's why in a piece um, that we put out several months ago called uh, A Serious Proposal on U.S. Energy, I believe it was called something to that effect, um, we said, since we have an abundance of basically stranded natural gas in the U.S., um, why don't we recapture the capacity to produce cheap solar here using natural gas that is still at $92 per million, uh, so $42 per barrel of oil equivalent? You have you can't do that in isolation though. You actually have to unleash U.S. natural gas producers. Otherwise, you're just going to make the price of natural gas soar to unacceptable levels on the home front. So, if you unleash American ingenuity and technology and capital to create more natural gas, build the pipelines needed to unlock it and to lift it out of the region, while simultaneously building polysilicon production facilities in the fields, while simultaneously reawakening our nuclear strategy and deploying small modular reactors everywhere we can, um, we will get to a point where we produce more than enough energy for the home front with far less carbon footprint and the ability to export even more of that to um, project our geopolitical power more effectively. Um, that has to be the answer. The only question is how long it takes for us to get there and who suffers between now and then. Uh, Duberg, I, I want to close by asking you a, a series of questions uh, about the the environment and, and emissions, and, and um, you know there, there are tons of of trade offs we have here. It's very expensive to electrify the economy as you just laid out, and the extraction of a lot of these these minerals are themselves very bad for the environment. But uh, how do you sort of weigh the risk reward of renewables versus fossil fuels when, uh, you know, according to the, the United Nations report, and I'm curious if you, if you agree with this scientific uh, finding, because you do have a uh, you know, hard science background, um, uh, we have about 400 gigatons of, of carbon emissions yet as a, as a budget before, uh, you know, it's, it's very likely in, in order to remain within a, a one and a half degrees Celsius temperature rise. And again, according to the same study, like a, a two degree Celsius temperature rise is when 
all coral reefs um, are, are dead and, uh, you know, very rare weather pattern patterns become far, far more normal. So I'm curious, how do you sort of weigh the risk rewards uh, based on the emissions? So, um, as we said earlier, uh, energy is life. And um, if one of the parameters that we deem is important, uh, if it involves creating as much life as possible with the least amount of carbon emitted, that forms the foundation of our entire energy proposal. And so we take as an axiom that society has decided it wants to do that. Whether those projections are real, whether those models are consistent, whether the consequences of such change wouldn't be readily handled with much less money by simply preventative and responding to those consequences are debates for other people to engage in and frankly have evolved to the point where it doesn't make much sense to get involved in those debates because people are entrenched in their ideas and they will never change their mind. We take as an axiom that it is desirous to minimize our carbon emissions. We state explicitly that it's literally impossible to get to zero. Impossible to get to zero uh, by a certain time or impossible to get to zero by 2050 or forever? Or It's, all, it's very difficult to contemplate a world where um, the entirety of our fossil fuel dependence can be abated in any reasonable time frame for any reasonable amount of money. It is just too useful. It is just too uh, energy intense. Um, even if we solve the grid, the grid is only a small part of our quote energy needs. We still need to have create fertilizer. We still need to, you know, electrically powered diesel trucks in these mines are not going to last very long. Um, and um, it would be highly inefficient use of, of our limited resources to completely eliminate fossil fuels. Um, so net zero, in fact, doesn't get you to zero, right? I mean, this is all reference to, I believe, what, 1990 as, as the basis point. So we'd like to have no incremental emissions over, so it might be a different year. I, I, but again, the, the, the word zero gets tossed around a lot. We like to say zero is an emotional number. Um, so in our context, we believe better is better and perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good. Um, if you desire, again, everybody forgets the fact that we are effectively reallocating standard of living here. As I said earlier, energy is nothing more than your, you know, how much standard of living you can create and store. Like a home has a lot of previous energy spent in it to, you know, right angles don't happen in nature. They have to be imposed, they have to be made. Uh, your home is stored energy that you continuously benefit from it's well insulated and so on. Um, but you still need a huge amount of energy input into your home to keep it running, to keep it ordered, to keep a good standard of living. So how much standard of living do we want to deploy? How equitably do we want to deploy it? And how few CO2 emissions can we do to uh, achieve that are the core questions. And that's why when we write a plan comprehensively, we take into account things like nuclear, solar, storage, and natural gas. We, in a, there is a world where um, you can use far less oil and transportation, and you can use far less coal and power production, uh, and you could preserve those fossil fuels for things like the generation of needed chemicals like fertilizer and so on, um, and you know concentrate the use of, of diesel in mines where we need these materials to affect that transformation. Um, but you can't do it without nuclear power, and you can't do it without a resurgence of natural gas, and you can't do it with a, without a few more miraculous inventions on the energy storage front. Uh, one of the policies we've advocated for, for example, is to um, shift our focus away from full battery electric vehicles and towards plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. And here's why. 
the battery materials aren't available. Like they're just literally not available to fully electrify um, our fleet on any kind of time horizon that matters. If a full battery electric vehicle has an 80 kilowatt hour battery pack in it, um, you could divide that battery by four and spread it to four plug-in hybrid electric vehicles and abate a lot more oil that way. And so um, when we talk about electrification of vehicles, we are focusing on reducing the maximum amount of gasoline burned in the quickest amount of time possible for the reasons we just talked about. We're trying to minimize the number of CO2 emissions as quickly as possible. Having a huge battery pack of one car while the other three cars rely 100% on fossil fuels makes no sense. You can abate 80 to 90% of four people's emissions um, from oil um, as opposed to 100% of one driver. Uh, the math is very clear. In fact, the real way to do it is to use the Prius system. You know, if, if battery constraints are really um, the driver here, and they are, we need to manage those constraints. And so uh, we're not serious yet until we, still, until we, we refocus our policy on plug-in hybrids over hybrid, uh, full, full BEVs. You know? um, these are just facts. Like there's not enough cobalt, nickel, or lithium in the world to electrify our vehicle fleet. Um, there's a fair amount of it to abate a significant amount of our oil and gas use if we do it smartly, we're not doing it smartly. So I don't know why we're expecting a good outcome. Uh, I think, I, I, I hope that most people walking away from this interview will uh, have a more uh, nuanced understanding of just what quote green policy, as it has been called, um, you know, some of the some of the consequences of that. For example, not investing in nuclear and then having to rely on coal. I mean, just by definition, that is not green. Uh, but are there so, quote green policies in, in the mainstream, such as subsidizing uh, green energy like wind and solar that you think are pro-energy and hence pro-life. I agree that shutting off uh, investment in fossil fuels, that's anti-energy and hence, according to your framework, anti-life. But what about boosting up uh, you know, via the government, uh, the fiscal engine, uh, green energy uh, like wind and solar? So uh, we are far more supportive of solar than we are of wind. Um, and we we outlined in the piece, you know, 20,000 volts under the sea, what we think it would be necessary to make those investments um, have the optimum effect possible. The most important of which is to figure out a way to convert solar power into baseload power. And the, the, the nice part about that project, um, which we described as kind of an exception that proves the rule because they have near perfect wind and near perfect solar and a giant battery such that, you know, at least as they propose it, um, they will be able to transmit baseload power to the UK grid. That's great. If we could solve that problem economically, that would be a huge boom. Um, and assuming we've solved the, the problem of making these solar panels at scale, which again, you can't do these things in isolation. Those solar panels have to come from somewhere. And the, the big issue that gets um, papered over, glossed over, or um, obfuscated um, nefariously <laughs> is the fact that these renewable projects produce intermittent power. And so when people, if here's a great test. If you ever hear somebody talk about the levelized cost of electricity as a way of accurately measuring the cost of solar wind, they either don't know what they're talking about or, or worse, they know what they're talking about and they're being deceptive. Um, when you supply intermittent power to a grid, that creates real costs that have to be paid by the grid operators to levelize the grid, balance the grid. The grid, you know, balancing a grid is, is a symphony. Uh, it's a miracle that it works as often and as reliably as it does. 
Um, and so when you overload a base lo- a grid with intermittent power, like they've done in Germany and like they're doing in California, you see blackouts and you see higher prices for a reason. And that reason is intermittent power is expensive. It has to be offset. And offsetting that intermittency almost always comes from, say, natural gas, expensive peaking plants. Um, and so those costs are real and they don't get counted in the denominator. Now, long term, if we can figure out technologies that can cost effectively convert solar into uh, baseload power, then you have a winning strategy. Now, you still have to pay the penalty. Where does that energy come from? You have to put four years worth of energy to create a solar panel um, that it will produce. Um, So you have to do it in a controlled way because by definition, you are competing for that energy with real-time uses like producing food. Um, But yeah, we're not anti-solar. We're not even anti-renewable. We are pro-practical renewable. Um, And we're pro-practical renewable in the proper context of co-developing it with nuclear and um, and optimizing the limited amount of fossil fuels we will have to use in all scenarios such that we can get the maximum life for the least CO2 emitted. Mm, Thanks for that. Uh, I've got two questions. So I I asked on Twitter that I was interviewing the green chicken and people posted a lot of their questions. So I just got uh, two quick questions for you. Cool Hand Duke asks, can you ask a question about the timeline or ability of carbon nanotube-based technology to begin to supplant some of the commodities in the production of manufactured goods? Yeah, unfortunately, um, broadly speaking, um, this is obviously a generalization, but the word nano is very closely associated with the word hype um, in in our minds. Um, not all of it. Um, we happen to know a fair bit about nanotechnology. Um, but um, in the pantheon of things that we're interested in and in the uh, news headlines we're hoping to see, um, the word nano rarely makes an appearance. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. And then we've got another question asking, what is Doomberg optimistic about? Uh, Doomberg is optimistic uh, in the long run about humanity. Um, Doomberg is op- optimistic that we will, in fact, come to our senses. Um, we're generally optimistic in our own lives. Um, we're, we're long the human spirit. We're long human ingenuity. Uh, we're long human technological development. Um, we we tried hard to focus on the positive emails that we get as opposed to the negative ones. Um, and Doomberg is a bit satire. I mean, it's a great name. Um, and, and people don't take us literally, but we hope they take us seriously. Um, you know, part of the mission of Doomberg is to highlight these things before it's too late, such that more people understand the inevitable consequences of poor decisions earlier so that maybe we can bend the curve. And if in our own way, uh, on the nanoscale, we were able to bend that curve, um, then we've, we've, we've at least done our part, you know. Um, and so to the extent that we can be educational, we've had, we have many members of, of government reading our pieces and reaching out to us and staffers in Congress. And, um, and so we do believe we're, we're having an impact and shaping the narrative and that's great. Um, but yeah, we're, we're not pessimistic people. Uh, we are you know, um, sort of defensively pessimistic in the sense that we're prepared for worst case scenarios. But ultimately, this will all resolve. Um, these crises will pass. Um, technology continues to grow at an exponential rate. Uh, and we're ultimately long term excited about the future. We just wish that we would take better paths to get there uh, because the path function matters. All right. Well, Doomberg, thank you so much for uh, coming on uh, my podcast. It's been great hearing hearing your insights. I urge everyone watching to follow you on follow your team on Twitter at Doomberg T and your writings, which I really recommend, uh, can be found at Doomberg.com 
excuse me, doomberg.substack.com. Doomberg, is it my understanding that uh, your Substack is just recently became like one of the top Substacks uh, for finance in the world? Yeah, so we, um, for, for paid Substacks, yes, we're, I believe we're, as of this recording, number four, which is amazing and stunning and um, humbling and thrilling all at the same time. We opened up our paywall on April 6th. Um, we're recording this on April 27th. Um, after April 30th, all of our pieces will be behind the paywall, and we hope to convert as many of our pr prior subscribers as possible to uh, paid subscribers. This, this has been an incredible journey for us, but we've written and researched and edited and created 105, we hope, thoughtful and, and insightful articles, and that comes at both a direct cost and an opportunity cost compared to... Um, what we could have been doing with that time. And um, our dream is to do Doomberg for a living and the early response after opening up the paywall, but still keeping everything free seems to indicate that that's going to be a real possibility. Uh, we're excited to continue to earn people's business and to continue to grow as a paid newsletter. Um, we've priced it to be as, a, as, a, as, um, as affordable as possible, given the cost and the time that goes into these things. Uh, and we'll always be free on Twitter and producing original content there as well at Doomberg T, like you said, but the work of our life is Doomberg. It's been a thrill. Um, really happy to um, to have been here today with you, Jack. And anytime you want to have us back, we're always happy to come on. Thank you.